0: Welcome back to Money for Nothing, your favorite podcast about music and capitalism. Probably the only podcast about music and capitalism, as far as far as I'm aware. Today we pick up from where we left off two episodes ago in our discussion on King Records and continue into the 1950s with a focus on the overlooked histories of R&B here in the United States, which is. Not only very much a part of black American history and sometimes overlooked, but also I think Sam and I both believe that it reveals a a certain pathway to understanding parts, at least, of where we got to where we are now. When thinking of, say, the Black Lives Matter movement and the coast-to-coast protests that have been going on this year and just the widespread discussions about race in this country. So to do this for this episode, Sam interviewed Brian Ward to delve into the histories of R&B in the 50s. Ward is an author and professor of American Studies, and Sam will be discussing his book, Just My Soul Responding, which dives into the often neglected relationship between R&B, black consciousness, and race relations here in the United States, and also how the recording and broadcasting industry during the 1950s, really became something of an arena for the battle of civil rights and, of course, black economic empowerment in a capitalist society. So here's Sam's interview with Brian Ward. Followed by, as usual, a brief discussion by Sam and I. Enjoy. Life could Enjoy. be a
1: dream, do-do-do-do-shaboom
0: Life could be a dream,
2: if I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream, sweetheart, hello, hello again shaboom and do oh, boom a meel a boom a do boom a do ding lang the lang
1: the lang oh 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 bip shabo ba and we've been thinking about kind of the emergence of R&B as this kind of really fascinating paradigmatic moment when a lot of these, a lot of these tensions, a lot of these um, processes kind of kind of emerge and really sh- totally reshape American culture. So you start your account with the song Shaboom. So why is that, why is that song important and kind of how does it represent um, the beginning of the changes
2: of this era? I think, you know, most people when they are starting books uh, it's a mixture of uh, sort of uh, shrewd analytical decision making and absolute serendipity. And uh, the fact that Shaboom, which is recorded by the Chords, is essentially a rhythm and blues record that breaks through into the traditionally white pop charts in the spring of 1954, seemed like a convenient hook to hang a story about uh, race relations, given that the same spring is the uh, Brown decision. Uh, Brown versus Topeka Board of Education decision, which declares uh, segregated schooling um, unconstitutional. Um, so, you know, you had that synchronicity there. But actually, I think that there's more to the story of Shibboom, perhaps, than uh, the simple timeliness, uh, if you like. It gets covered by the crew cuts, um, so it becomes part of that phenomenon where kind of sanitized white or whiter versions of rhythm and blues songs are put out. Um, to try to secure a, a broader market than raw rhythm and blues might actually have, uh, have um, found. And after Shaboom, there's re- really never a point where African-American music is not being, um, making some incursion into the traditionally lily-white uh, popular music arts. and in increasing numbers after Shaboom. It's not the first, there are others like Gee by the Crows, does it in 53. You could say lots of Lewis Jordan stuff and Mackin Cole stuff, does it before that. But after the spring of 1954, there's never a moment where the white pop charts are as white as they had been previously. I think, you know, it was a, a very convenient, but I think uh, quite instructive uh, crossover. Yet.
1: So, so who, who are producing these records? Because they're not just a new set of artists, but it's also not exclusively, as you point out, but um, primarily dominated by a new set of labels as well.
2: Yeah, there's a you know that sort of upsurge of independent labels in the tail end of uh, the 1940s that continues into the 50s um, are producing rhythm and blues music alongside a hell of a lot of other music. Um, you know, they got their eye on the uh, the financial pot of wine. They're frankly not precious or purists at all. They'll make records for any given constituency that they think they can sell to. So. You know, some of these labels are also producing polka records and they're trying to target the Lithuanian market because the majors aren't that interested in those markets anymore. But you've got that kind of big seven of, of um, independent labels like chess and uh, King, Federal, um, Aladdin, perhaps, Modern, Savoy, Specialty. They are making these recordings overwhelmingly for an African-American market. It comes as something of a surprise to them that there is this small but growing constituency of um, young whites in particular who are also interested in this music and they begin to catch a glimpse of that market. So before there's
1: even really crossover as a a substantive large-scale possibility, there is also this ability of these labels to make a, a, a decent living, survive by recording music... From these black mark, you know, f- from the black community and for the black community.
2: Yeah, you know, I think they they are assuming in whatever passes for their financial modelling that that is where they're going to get the bulk of their purchases and the bulk of their um, exposure from African American uh, oriented broadcasters. For example, they're not expecting suddenly that a top forty show such a thing existed is going to play their stuff. So they are very much targeted towards the African-American uh, community. And as I say, they kind of get this bonus every now and again where something begins to attract a white constituency that they're not certainly before 54, and I think before much before 55, they're not really tailoring their product to hit that market. That market finds things that it likes about this music and gravitates towards the music without much in the way of compromise or dilution, um, as some people would, you know, would call some of the later fare that's put out by these labels.
1: What's kind of remarkable is that they really, these label these independent labels begin to break the relative stranglehold that the majors had had on the American market. Um, so why, why aren't the majors in this, I mean, you know, if you think back to the 30s, they're selling blues records, some of these majors. Why did they get out of this market? Why did they leave the, you know, the German market or the Polish market or the black market to to, to fend for itself? It's,
2: it's a really good question. And I think sort of some nuance needs to be uh, sort of introduced there. Um, so I've been talking about independent labels, and I've talked about the big seven, I think I probably forgot to mention Atlantic, which may be the biggest of those seven independent labels. Okay, there are about 40,000 thousand other independent labels that we don't have time and i'm not going to live long enough to mention who are also kind of trying to make a living often with very small micro markets in you know los angeles or Baltimore or wherever so they're you know another part of the universe as for the majors you know the generalization that they pretty much gave up on the, the african-american minority market Kind of has some truth, but they never gave up entirely on that market. There are still blues and rhythm and blues and jazz records being produced by the majors, and some of the great sort of you know heroes of the rock and roll explosion of the mid-fifties cut their teeth, like someone like Little Richard records for RCA, you know, in the early nineteen-fifties. People like Laverne Baker are recording for um, Columbia Records. You know, it's not as if the majors have entirely neglected the minority markets however that's not where the bulk of their energies lie I think another thing that complicates things in the late 40s and early 50s is the arrival of LP records you know okay so those LP records have been out classical music they're putting out mainstream pop music they're putting out jazz um often sort of swing and then to a, a you know um post high swing era jazz, um, and those uh, albums are being mostly directed to a white middle-class uh, audience. They've you know, lost sight of where the singles market uh, uh, might be to some extent. So I guess you know, what I'm saying is it's, it's slightly messier than the cliche that it's majors ignore all white music, indies begin all white music. I think there are, you know, sort of uh, nuances within those categorizations. Um, But we all live by these generalizations to some extent. We have to. Um, Majors took their eye off the prize. And I think it's um, our group of specialty records. It said, you know, basically we picked up the crumbs from the table of the majors because they weren't paying attention to these markets.
1: And I mean, just to add another layer, I mean, in your book, you kind of talk about um, maybe another way to put this is that also these markets are changing in ways that the majors are slower to pick up on right that you've got massive post-war prosperity in the US and despite the fact that it's a profoundly racially unequal society that also that includes huge swaths of the African American population that are able to you know have more ready access to consumer goods um, you talk about kind of the the great migration and the centralization of Um, of audiences, right? That it's possible to reach these audiences that were previously far more scattered.
2: Mm -hmm. No, I think that that's really important and, you know, quite rightly, we always have that caveat that however quickly African-American mean income was rising in the post-war period, you know, it's still only 55% of white income, so therefore, you know, there's this huge racial disparity. However, late 40s through mid 50s, black median income is increasing more quickly than white median income as a generalization across the country. So, you know, people spot this huge billion dollar market um, that's as big as many small countries in terms of its disposable income, despite all the oppression and marginalization that we need to take into account. And they want a piece of that. And I think that dovetails with the fact that the the majors are always looking at the, the, the mainstream because that is the biggest market. You know, that's that's 85 to 90 percent of the potential record buyers. That's where their focus is until they get uh, until, you know, post Presley, really, where you suddenly think, okay, hang on. A huge chunk of that mainstream white market may also be into this stuff um, as well. The indies are just more agile. They're more responsive, you know, because of their community roots. You know, they're, they're put together by people who. You know, nightclub owners or record store owners and they know what the local community will buy a thousand copies of and that's a that's a decent profit if you you know you're putting out a single and you get a thousand uh, copies sold in a um, um a major urban market you're not going to be a millionaire but you're going to make a decent living
1: no that's that, that makes a lot of sense i mean it, and it also if you think about this history we have as you point out in some ways survivors bias that Indie labels could take chances that a major label couldn't because most indie label chances didn't pan out and they went out of business.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and curiously, there's an inverse of that where occasionally, you know, indies were brought down and humbled by unexpected success. They didn't have the wherewithal to print enough records. They couldn't meet the demand. And that's actually another sort of sub-phenomena you see in this era, which is of indies having sort of small hits that suddenly get real momentum and traction and then selling the rights on to bigger labels to press more copies push the promotion harder and that sort of subleasing if you like or uh, you know selling the rights on is another sort of uh, um, part of the equation and it shows the precariousness of many of these small indies that actually it's kind of a mixed blessing to have a major major hit because you have to do something out.
1: so another major factor in the story is the rise of black oriented radio
2: i think this is absolutely uh, crucial and uh, you know just my soul responding was my first foray into this field and i wrote a lot about black oriented radio and became so fascinated with it that i actually wrote my second book on black oriented radio and the civil rights movement in the south because i did i do think it's sort of um you know an underappreciated catalyst for the birth of rock and roll but i also think it needs to be put alongside you know The church and black fraternities and black unions as a sort of uh, mobilizing force for the African-American freedom struggle. So, you know, I think black oriented radio is is indispensable for this story. I also think it's another um, occasion where people with commercial interests find a niche that is not being catered to by the mainstream media. So for example, television rises in the late 40s and early 50s, it's got its eyes on the main prize of middle white America with more disposable income. And frankly, it loses sight of minority broadcasting niches and African-American community, as we've already said, has a wadge of of disposable income, despite its general uh, poverty relative to, to whites and radio, is just much more accessible you can put african-american djs on announcers on who speak to the community who come from the community and they will sell your goods on air you know so you've got reverend erskine forsch comes on to do his gospel show in birmingham alabama and he's selling you salvation through the lord but he's also selling you park sausages you know he he will sell you stuff alongside this wonderful record and some you know community news and you know, nods in the direction of black history and black uh, uh, creative and cultural achievements, all this stuff which creates a bond for the black community but what you can't do is stop whites listening to it so I think you know that I always thought that the book that ended up being called very prosaically Radio and the uh, Civil Rights Struggle in the South, I always thought it was going to be called You Can't Segregate the Airwaves because I assumed at some point someone was going to say that phrase in an interview or on a piece of paper and I could use it that's the point is you know irrespective of the politics of production and the racial dynamics of production once the signal's up there if you've got a receiver you can retune from your you know hey kaiser and your you know perry como's golden hour and you can find african-american music and that's of course what a lot of young white kids did just leave it to me
1: I mean, you have an amazing, just thinking about kind of the, the, the structures of, of, of black radio and radio in general, um, yeah, I mean, it's always it's always struck me that this music and this technology really go together, because what you have also is this kind of expansion of radio from the centerpiece of, of the household, you know, the, the new parlor piano, which it was in, in the 20s and 30s, into... Um, And, you know, my understanding is for a minute, the networks thought radio was going to kind of die until it gets repurposed for music and and really tied to to technologies of mobility like the like the automobile. So you get the, the, you know, R&B automobile as kind of a cultural technology and a hard technology kind of going hand in hand in, in this kind of amazing cross defining way.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, paying attention to the technologies and the relative cost of technologies is kind of really important. So, you know, a household will have a TV. It'll have four radios. So, you know, like the teenagers can go upstairs with their radio. But, you know, early 50s, late 50s, two TV households were not that common. Certainly in the African-American community, you know, there's much greater um, listenership to radio broadcasts coming from black-oriented radio than there is from, t- uh, you know, than there is viewing of TV. But I think, you know, the, the dynamic between the affordability or non-affordability of the technologies and the actual uh, technologies themselves is quite important. Car radio is absolutely, you know, indispensable because it's another place where, you know, these broadcasts can be heard sometimes surreptitiously. You know, you'll take dad's car out for an evening drive and that's where you change the dial. And suddenly you're not listening to either, you know, the networks or the white bread um, music that might be coming out of, of the station that he tunes to. You, you know, you're searching around for WDIA in Memphis or one of the national uh, WLAC, one of these big stations that uh, puts out rhythm and blues and gospel uh, music that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily be able to access. I think you know, just to continue on this riff, which you, you know you, you started. I think it's right. Uh, there's uh, workplace radio as well. Now that's kind of an interesting <clears> phenomenon because in overwhelmingly white workplaces where radios are, are on, you would imagine that the broadcasting is is white oriented. But in places where uh, you know shops and uh, to some extent, as far as uh, you can, in factories where the noise levels aren't too high. Where it's an overwhelmingly uh, African-American workforce, you are going to be listening to more black music uh, at work.
1: I mean, I also I just want to dial dial in on something that you say you call it black oriented radio versus black radio. And that's a very important distinction, it seems to me.
2: So like 1960, there are probably four black owned radio stations in the whole United States. And by 1970, there, depending on how you cut the the ownership figures, it's about a dozen or 14 at most. So hardly any of the radio broadcasting that puts black music into the ether is actually owned by African-Americans. They're overwhelmingly white-owned with overwhelmingly whites in executive positions. Um, The on-air personalities, the people who bring the punters into here, the, uh, the programs and the music that is played is overwhelmingly, and not exclusively, African American. Um, so, you know, it's to draw that distinction. If you say black radio, there might be the inference that it's owned by blacks, run by blacks, you know, that it's an, an African American enterprise. I think, with one or two very notable exceptions, that's just wrong.
1: There's this fascinating at this point, right? It's 56, 57, um, and, and there's a, a kind of complicated. Maybe bifurcation is not quite the right word, because what you do, you have white audiences really beginning to pay attention to black R and B, um, but you also have at the same time, and thinking of harder, or you know, uh, Chuck Berry or Bo Diddley, or but pretty quickly, almost immediately, <laughs> those styles fall out of favor. In relationship to kind of this uh, "quote-unquote" smoother black pop sound, which is both, it seems, uh, from your book, a result of sometimes our you know labels like Atlantic attempting to reach a wide audience, uh, an audience of uh, adults, a uh, uh, audience more interested in smoother, um, mellower sounds, but also very much a result of cultural and aesthetic forces within the black
2: community? Yeah, you know, I think it is complicated and it's messy and uh, you know, that's why I kind of picked my way through that quite gently or delicately. There are always multiple streams of music being produced and multiple streams of audiences consuming different things. Sometimes not exclusively in a given stream, but multiple streams, you know, by individuals and groups of people. So it's inevitably a a messy story. I think what does happen is once the proven um, stickability of rock and roll from 56, really from the the breakthrough of Presley onwards, I think that's just a a game changer. And those um, labels that have the wherewithal, like Atlantic, um, for example, more self-consciously begin to court that bigger crossover market. And I think, you know, for them, it's Clyde McFatter's Seven Days. That's the one that they talk about say, okay, we went in there and said, how do we hit middle white America with that kind of song? And I think that's a, that's a genuine phenomenon, that that sort of industry-led, but with the complicity of artists who would rather sell more records than less. You know, it's only, you know, folks who come back 40 years later and say, well, that was more authentic than that, you know, who actually have those arguments the artists wanted to make the best livings they could with some measure of integrity and self-respect intact so i think that's a you know that's a genuine phenomenon what i don't think we should do is actually underestimate the fact that african-american tastes were much more diverse and eclectic than stereotypes might suggest even before the glimpse of crossover markets they enjoyed records by groups like you know the orioles and uh, Uh, early platters recordings which were pretty smooth um that had strings this wasn't for a white market this was because among the many things that african americans being a pretty diverse group of people could do is actually walk and chew gum at the same time you know they actually had the capacity to listen to things that weren't what white america thought was classic blue classic rhythm of blues they actually had more eclectic taste than we give credit for During the late 50s, early 60s, I believe as the civil rights movement, uh, uh, the modern phase of the civil rights movement gathers momentum, there is a sort of more integrationist aesthetic that curries favour with a greater number of African-American musicians and um, music buyers and fans than ever before. And I think, you know, that's reciprocated in the sense that African-Americans begin to get more access to the white audience than ever before. And it kind of acts as a sort of symbolic moment that seems to portend of a, a future of greater harmony and brotherhood. And, you know, the fact that retrospectively we can say that was a flawed, naive, romantic vision of what was going on. That doesn't mean that at the time, the crossover of the twist to suddenly become a major national and then international, phenomenon doesn't see, you know, isn't perceived as some portent of a better, more equitable uh, future.
1: No, no, there's a lot there. I mean, for me, th- this was one of the real, like, revelations of-, of reading the book, which is that I'd kind of grown up with this very simplistic narrative, right? That there's R&B, uh, it gets changed, you know, Alan Freed changes its name to rock and roll, Maybe in Sun Records there's more country, maybe not. But then there's this process of kind of whitewashing that for a crossover audience that results in this kind of anodyne mainstream pop that sells well but lacks presence or fire until uh, kind of the the reintroduction of, of the, the, the true faith of, of gospel music creates soul. And it's not that that isn't true, but you're also saying that it's a wild oversimplification of African-American tastes in this period.
2: Yeah, I think that there's a, you know, the narrative that you just set out so so succinctly is exactly what I grew up with. And it's exactly what I expected to find. What surprised me was the levels of African-American interest and enthusiasm for the music that had been denigrated you know over the years by the first couple of generations of what we might think of as rock historians as some sort of like uh, diminished hiatus between the high points of rhythm and blues and early rock and roll and the full-fledged emergence of soul there was this sort of you know uh, period that was typified by a, a lot of sort of balladry big, big and a lot of girl groups who seemed more manufactured than real whatever real might mean and i just think when you actually look at the consumption side to buy the argument that african americans were spending a lot of their hard-earned cash that they didn't have much of on records they didn't really like or they were tuning in to djs playing music that they couldn't identify with in some way it's just kind of it seems almost insulting and kind of counterintuitive so i actually just looked at record sales and uh you know, that just revealed that there was an enormous black market for these kinds of African-American uh, recordings. And then much more surprisingly, the fact that Neil Sedaka and Elvis and, uh, you know, Buddy Holly are doing so well with African-American audiences you know, was, was uh, mind-boggling to me. And that reverse crossover that took place between 56 and really 63, 64, Um, you know, it's been written out of the history. And I think that does a disservice to the historical moment when such things could and did happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, the most amazing fact, like the the fact that really kind of tied it in a bow for me was the fact that, you know, there are these famous like Pat Boone (laughs) recordings of Tutti Frutti, these very... But the fact that white versions of Black-originated songs are then recharting... On the black charts.
2: I think that window where there's a kind of, you know, where Pat Boone has some real purchase for about an hour and a half is pretty small. You know, I think African Americans gravitate towards the originals, like, as indeed do white youths. You know, Pat Boone's cover versions of, uh, of, of Little Richard do really well for a short while, but then more and more whites gravitate towards the, uh, the originals because by just about every aesthetic criteria one could mobilize, they're just stronger records. Um, They're just better records. Um, But it is indicative of that sort of period of flux that plays out 56 through 63. I think it's, you know, the fact that Elvis Presley has 24 Rhythm and Blues top 10 hits, you know, and that was pretty much written out of history. The fact that level of interest in Elvis by African Americans that wasn't just intrigue. You know, the Beatles intrigued African Americans, but they didn't really buy Beatle records in, in the 60s. It's a huge generalization, but it kind of holds true. Presley not only fascinated African Americans, but they bought a hell of a lot of Presley records.
1: Won't you ever
0: on your neck to tell the world I'm yours
2: by heck let them see your love for me and let them see by the rank of your neck
1: won't you I also wonder um, to what extent this kind of emergence of alternate tastes, to what extent it has to do with the label structure of the time. I mean, because one of the things that seems critically important when you have white labels recording black artists is the ways in which white label prejudices affect the kind of music that's released. Maybe this is totally incorrect, but I wonder in this hyper-competitive market where you know thousands and thousands of small labels are vying f- with that, with very little separation <laughs> from the tastes of this black consumer market whether you're actually getting maybe a more accurate read of their tastes than in times when the rec- the music industry is more consolidated and has more power vis-a-vis their their um, customers
2: yeah i you know i think there there's something to that i mean this is a moment i, I use the word flux i think people are trying to work out what the new normal is going to be, you know, in terms of record purchasing and in terms of generational, regional, racial and gender distinctions. And one of the things about studying, you know, popular music is for decades, it was decried as not particularly useful for historians because the industry's interventions meant that you couldn't really make a, a join the dots between consumption, taste, and like the consciousness of any group of people in fact i think it's just the opposite because the industry is so invested in trying to work out what the current trends are what the next trends will be ever monitoring every index of consumer taste whether the jukebox plays on air requests for particular songs on the radio um, you know, billability, uh, bookability in terms of live performances. Okay, so if someone's really popular in a live film, why don't we get them to record? The industry has, certainly the, the major uh, um, players in the industry, has a lot of time, money and energy devoted towards looking at tastes and trying to pass them as much as possible. Yes, they'd love to manipulate them, but actually time and time again consumers seem very resistant to actually fitting into modeling that these uh, label, uh, these big labels do. And That's where the smaller labels are much more agile because of their rootedness in local communities. I think. So,
1: I just want to go back to this point about radio and the point about the tremendous impact that this music had. Because, um, I mean, in, in the book you call it maybe the most integrated music scene that had existed in America, maybe to date. I don't know if. To the present but it, it's really remarkable and one of the questions that you grapple with is whether and to what extent musical crossover re- changed um the culture in general and specifically changed the kind of the culture of prejudice of the white teenagers who are buying this music
2: yeah and you know because ultimately i was a a historian of the African-American freedom struggle who was trying to use music and the music industry to interrogate precisely those sorts of things. You know, the way in which race relations changed, racial consciousness uh, um, changed during the 50s and 60s. This was a really important kind of dynamic and an important question. And I wanted to pay respect to those people in the late 50s and early 60s who genuinely believed that this kind of crossover moment was redolent or a portent of more um, equitable and harmonious race relations, because that was a thing. However, you know, you look back and you say, actually, that was a thing to do with music primarily. And you know, there's the, these salutary tales that I tell in the book of. You know, African-American performers like Solomon Burke, you know, playing for Klan rallies. Essentially, there was there's no reason to believe that after those rallies ended, or after those um, performances ended, that those Klansmen went, "Oh my God, we've got it all wrong," you know, African-Americans. We should treat them equitably. I'll take I'll burn my hood. You know, there's there's nothing that suggests there's that kind of causal link between a love of black music by white Americans and more progressive uh, attitudes towards race relations however there is undoubtedly an opening up of potential for seeing shared humanity that comes through music and that's kind of another dimension um of the study if you like time and time again there were there, you know i found evidence of people saying you know it was by uh, you know david roediger great on this You know, he heard smoky robinson And all the truths he'd been told growing up in a white, blue-collar neighborhood in Detroit about them and us just disintegrated. Because Smokey Robinson articulated perfectly his adolescent hopes and dreams, um, you know, uh, as he was growing up. And so, you know, the, the, the tenacity of racial stereotyping was at least loosened. Now, you know, for some people that manifested itself in going on to be active supporters of civil rights. I and mean, yeah, for other people, it didn't make a lot of difference to the way they acted and behaved. But it did open up potential, I think, for uh, greater racial understanding.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 uh, in doing research, I learned a little bit about the, um, the Southern fraternity circuit for these R&B performers, which is tremendously important. But also we know from Ralph Northam and other people in the US, these people are putting on minstrel shows.
2: For just my responding, for the uh, cover shot, we had a picture of, uh, that was taken by a photographer uh, called Ed Roseberry in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the University of Virginia, of Chuck Berry, playing um, in one of the auditoria there. And you know, he's playing to rap white audiences in an institution that would never, would not admit him, and would not, you know, allow him to stay on campus. Um, you know, those kind of paradoxes remind you that you can't do the sort of romantic thing, the music brought the races together. It's just not that simple. So the,
1: the flip side, I guess, of this, of that question, I kind of want to uh, maybe begin to wrap up with, um, is, I guess, about the relationship between this music, which is tremendously important, I mean, you tie it to the development of the freedom struggle. You tie it to changing, you know, uh, beliefs and social formations in the black community. But also that throughout all of this time, and until Motown, and even arguably the upper, much of the upper management of Motown is white. <laughs> it, these labels are owned and operated by white managers who exert a tremendous shaping force on the products that they're releasing and that the profits go, don't stay within the black
2: communities. And, you know, I think it's interesting that one of the venues for the freedom struggle becomes ownership, um, a struggle for ownership or more managerial uh, seniority within the media industries, the media and culture industries, so that African-Americans can um, have greater say over mechanisms of production of, of their popular culture, of dissemination, but also reap greater profits. So instead of sort of seeing the world of popular music and the broadcasting industry as kind of a, a reflection of the civil rights struggle, what I was trying to do is say, actually, this is a site of the civil rights struggle. And so the Na- uh, National Association of Television and Radio Announcers, which becomes a kind of quite radical black organisation in the late 60s, early 70s, forever trying to secure more black ownership of broadcasting facilities, more black publishing in the music industry. You know, that becomes a venue for black power struggles to secure a greater um, economic reward for black labor. I mean, at a very um, crude level. Um, what actually tends to happen is that as you get a rise in black uh, um, ownership of record labels, black ownership of radio facilities. Um, it turns out the black capitalists behave remarkably like white capitalists when they're in positions of power and authority. And that is, it sounds like a very glib generalization. It does hold true as a generalization. Uh, stereotyping might suggest But still, African Americans look at the bottom line, um, you know, when they're in positions of power, uh, economic power and authority.
1: And and even, you know, this is kind of moving out of, out of the 50s and the 60s and 70s, but even many of the major black owned labels, Rely heavily, profoundly reliant on structures of finance that render the question of their independence or not uh, a really iffy one. Thinking of you know Philadelphia, um, Philadelphia International, um, just Huff and Gamble.
2: To to um, I guess paraphrase uh, Amiri Baraka, you know it's a changing same because even those independents back in the '40s and '50s. The nature of their independence, given they're using major pressing parts, their major broadcasting networks, yeah, you know, it is, is problematic, and I think that that does um, that is an enduring paradox, if you like. Sometimes independence is much more useful as a marketing tool to claim independence, especially to claim you're, a, you know, a black company. You know, there's real marketing mileage in making those claims even if you're underwritten by a, an international corporation you're basically you know using the uh, means of dissemination that are have been set up by corporate America and you're advertising you know the goods that are produced by corporate America or international corporations you know that net the the fragility or the slipperiness of independent status is is a recurring motif in this book.
1: and I mean in some ways it gets back to one of the the key questions that is really at the heart of um, of this, this podcast in, in general, which is kind of the fact that recordings like this are both products of a for-profit system, <laughs> a, a brutal ex- of, always exploitative, often brutal for-profit system and also um, a really profound you know emanation of the human spirit, <laughs> like brilliant works of art.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's sort of a humbling thing. I think I ended at least two of my books with that, you know, in exactly that place. The miracle is that, that so much that's enduring and life-affirming and sustaining and uplifting and emotionally resonant comes out of a system that is actually really often very crass, extremely exploitative. Um, you know, is is a miracle of, sort, of sorts. That's that's the wonder, you know, of, of the 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 artistic artistry that uh exists within the, the world of music making and it defies some of the more craven and crass dimensions of the industry produce uh, art and culture of enormous value and uh you know something we should uh, cling to no love you know
1: when
2: you know i love you
1: yes i do One the most interesting
0: morning things morning. about the interview that Brian Ward brought up was this idea of the recording industry kind of being this arena where civil rights were kind of fought in a sense around, you know, possession of say recordings or, um, or Royal royalties and like things like that. You know, I thought it was really, really interesting. And I I think, I I don't know, you would know more than me, but that seems like a pretty original point. Have you read that anywhere else?
1: No, no. I mean, I I don't know. I I don't know if I've read anywhere else. I mean, it, it makes sense that this certainly that like, this framing of like black empowerment and framing of this like, like cultural self-legitimation during this period in a lot of different fronts, I think um, is a venue for making certain kind of claims, uh, citizenship claims, moral rights claims, certainly like in the United States, given how important business is to our vision of American life that like business has been a space in which people make citizenship claims. Consumption, too, is another way that you can say, like, I have a right to... I mean, if you think about, like, the sit-ins, right? Those are citizenship claims made via consumption. I have a right to sit at this lunch counter and purchase lunch, just like anyone else, because this is this free marketplace, and what you've done is make it an unfree marketplace.
0: Yeah, and even moving beyond that, I think that you could even look at what's going on right now you know between the democrats and the republicans trying to hash out you know the next stimulus and then trump just bypassing that with an executive order and not going down this this road too far but you know there's such an emphasis in you know what the what politicians are saying around businesses businesses we need to get the economy going. we need the businesses the small businesses you know that seems to be like you know obviously such a huge part of at least the you know ideology that america is is built off of and so i guess it does kind of make sense that those would also be kind of an arena around you know where we also do politics and fight for rights
1: absolutely and and one thing see we didn't talk as much about in the interview but which he discusses more uh, at greater length later in the book is the ways in which during the late sixties as the black power movement uh, really gains cultural force and political force in the United States, that there's really a rise of a set of black owned record labels. Um, But the complexities of how, because the industry as a whole is so, dominated by um, white companies, white distribution companies. In, in many ways, these labels um, don't end up functioning. It, it makes less of a difference than many of the people who start these labels make because the system is inherently exploitative, and so the results end up being exploitative. Certainly Motown was as bad to its artists as the slimiest record Label. I mean, Motown is notorious for really, especially its youngest stars, really signing them to absolutely terrible contracts. Yeah, and I mean,
0: before going down that road, because there's definitely things I'd like to comment about that, but he actually does, you know, Ward does actually make the point in the interview about how black-owned becomes almost more of a promotional marketing tool than actually representing some sort of real independence and control because oftentimes as as he notes there is actually backing from some of the bigger labels like an atlantic or something in which like is like white owned and like they actually are dictating more of what's actually going on on this like sub label or with their distribution yeah and distribution is a big one um, right I think we even see that now you know where you know and you, that, that once again plays into kind of your original point about just how much the idea of business is built into the fabric of you know the idea of America and it's emphasized and you know you know even look at like small businesses we're so much about the small business owner but You know, not to go on a tangent here, but, you know, talk to anybody who's, like, worked for a small business owner, and oftentimes, like, you know, it's even worse working for a small business than it is, like, working for, like, a bigger corporation, you know, for various different reasons, you know. But it just, it plays in because of the fact that you're still built into this system, which is, like, what, like you mentioned, exploitative. And it, it creates this, really, this sort of, this dilemma where, you know, you mentioned Motown, and, you know, here's this label that is promoting black artists and musicians who to this day resonate and are like held up as you know some of the greatest american musicians you know to exist in the last like whatever hundred years and you know there's constantly uh dedications to them and like no Mo- <laughs> covers Mo- motown and- kicks ass yeah, Motown, yeah, and then, right, exactly, like Motown kicks ass, exactly, and, you know, even when we talk about the statues, if we want to bring it, continue to, to compare it to what's going on now, you know, I've even read, you know, here and there, and I can't cite it right now, but, you know, why don't we have, like, a statue of, you know, say, insert, you know, famous black musician here, Aretha Franklin or whatever, and I'm all for a statue of Aretha Franklin, but there is a sort of darker side of it, as you mentioned, that, you know, it still exists within this exploitive system, and when you look behind the curtain of Motown, you're still getting this like sort of this very exploitive situation. And, you know, I'm glad that, you know, however much money like Aretha Franklin was able to make and, you know, establish herself and have a living and her grandchildren probably like and all that stuff. But nonetheless, like for every Aretha Franklin, there's you know, thousands of people's names who we probably don't know who have been exploited by this system. And, you know, let's be real. Aretha Franklin was exploited as well. But as Warden also notes, there were victories as well in these sort of battles, like within this arena, correct? I mean, I think at
1: the, towards the end of the interview, we got to this kind of complicated point, right? Where at one level, these black artists are touring racist frats in the South. And they are not making things, you know, it's totally possible for a frat at a university in Virginia To watch Bo Diddley one night and then put on a minstrel, literally put on a minstrel show the next night, and we've learned from the you know the Ralph Northam scandal that that's in fact exactly what these frats were doing in the fifties and sixties and seventies. But at the same time, representation does matter, right? And you know that that the ability um, of this art to kind of like cross barriers and create a common vision of shared humanity and shared emotions um and how important this art is to people. I mean, I I personally can't think it doesn't do anything to make people understand each other, not to get all kumbaya, but the question is like how do you put those two truths, both of which seem pretty unassailable to me, and how you put them together and how you understand they're functioning. Yeah, no, I think I disagree. And I think
0: that, you know, I'm more the cynic here. And I think we all we need to do is think of, you know, do the right thing. What were are having the conversation in, what, Vinny's Pizza Shop or whatever? And, you know, Spike Lee, whatever his main character's name was. You know, and he's, like, trying to talk to him. Like, who's your favorite basketball player? Michael Jordan. Who's your favorite artist? Prince. Right? You know, and he's like, yeah, these people are black. You know, he's trying to explain that to him. And they can't make that leap. And, like, maybe that leap is, like, being made more now. But I mean, like I, the, I could not in case people missed it in the interview, like the concept of Solomon Burke playing Klan rallies is <laughs> insane to me. And like such an important, though, part of history that oftentimes gets overlooked, that the, the, the ability of people to compartmentalize and not make that connection is, is <laughs> disheartening and incredible. And I, and I want to agree with you, and I don't think that like it's either like you know, it, obviously there's a gray area in between. Like there's something in the middle where like, yes, yeah, some people probably, you know, there's the perfect example that he gives about I forget which musician it is, but hearing Otis Redding.
1: Oh, it was it was it was um, Smokey Robinson. And it was uh, Dave Marsh, I think, who's one of the editors for Cream, growing up in Detroit. That story, like a white guy growing yeah, up in yeah, Detroit, yeah. Dave Marsh, whose and who life was, was changed by hearing, um, Smokey Robinson,
0: right. And so, and and the reason was is because basically, you know, he so this, you know, make a long story short. From what I understand, you know, he had grown up in you know whatever a family, a social situation in, in which there were a lot of racial prejudices, and you know he was taught that you know black Americans are different. But then he heard Smokey Robinson, he heard like the heartbreak and the emotion in his song it was like wait a minute I feel the exact same way and then he was able to make that leap so here we have like you know and you know who knows how much that was also like looking back and him like you know like altering the course of his uh you know his own personal history but like let's believe in it like why not I don't want to doubt it so I think it does happen you know there is the awakening I think in a way it's even happened for me it's probably happened for you you know the amount of work and research and conversations I've had you know in Jamaica or with the Jamaican diaspora, you know, around reggae and dance hall has really opened my eyes to a lot of different things. But I, I do wonder, like, how much does it actually really make a huge difference? And I think that, like, we have to be have a sobering view when it comes to this. I think that Ward is very quick to point this out, that, like, you know, it, the, the amount the, the real change they can make in a human being is is questionable.
1: I mean so there's another not to add in too much more complexity to this thing i mean there's another critical element here and which is like the long-term legacies of in american thought and and white american thought of the minstrel complex which is uh blackface minstrelsy um which is uh white people pretending to be black people was the crucial form of entertainment in the 19th, starting in the 19th century America and continuing up until the 30s. And that because of the extraordinarily racist structures of American society at that time, the entry point for Black performing artists into the entertainment industry was through minstrelsy. So you got this kind of like. Horrifying situation where black performers like groundbreaking black performers generations of them starting in like the 1870s 1880s um, the only way that they could make a living in entertainment and they could make a pretty good living at the time was to literally put on blackface and perform demeaning stereotypes often demeaning stereotypes but and that so that that's a crucial lens through which white America has viewed black musical performance so there is this double thing where if you take that as this kind of like originary moment for a lot of white, the white american imaginations of um, racial interaction and, and black entertainment culture in some ways you could say that solomon burke at the Klan rally is for in their minds right it's almost totally acceptable to enjoy black performance because in a white clansman's mind yeah, like, that. there's a long lineage of saying, like, black people, they're good performers, they're not people. <laughs> and that the, the, the counterpoint that cuts against it is that a lot of these artists in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, you know, would perform within and against those stereotypes, would perform in ways that both seemed to fit the box and would undercut them um, and push back against them. And often they had a large black audiences who like got the joke of them making fun of the stereotypes while the white audiences thought they were doing the stereotypes so it, i mean this is this day i don't i don't this is like a, something we'll talk about in the future and is a whole complicated thing but i do think that that's another level that needs to be added on to this kind of dynamic where it's possible that enjoying for 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 parts of for parts of white America that enjoying black musical performance like this, in some ways reinforces racism, doesn't just undercut it, and probably at some level does both at once. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's also interesting though, is that another thing to add another layer layer of complexity to this conversation, is that a lot of what Brian writes about in the book is really interesting. Is this moment of crossover. And it's a moment of crossover that's actually embodied in the charts, right? Where there's a R&B chart and there's a pop chart, and which is r- raced, right? There's a race. So the R&B, which is the, you know, the, the records that are selling among black audiences, and the pop chart, which is records that are selling among white audiences, and it's totally coded. And then there's such interpenetration and crossover between those records that Billboard gets rid of the the two separate charts for about four years or five years. And then by the mid sixties with the advent of soul, um, and funk and, and, as, as, uh, tastes change. And as, uh, the, the kind of the cultural conversation continues to evolve, there's a split again and billboard recreates the chart, but there's this incredible moment where we didn't, we didn't really, I don't know if we talked about it in the interview, but in the book, there's these incredible moments where he's interviewing, um, civil rights, young civil rights leaders in the late 60s growing up um, in the 50s. And they were like, oh yeah, we listened to Elvis and then also the Beatles and then also Solomon Burke. And like, we didn't think of this as, th- there was very little musical separation in this moment in this kind of way that really makes all the stuff we just said another layer more complex because if, if there's no difference and these charts are happening and white RB covers are white covers of R&B songs are crossing over onto the black R&B charts. At some point yeah, Pat Boone, Pat Boone Pat Boone scoring R&B hits. At some point calling them a white hit or a black hit, really it stops being meaningful because this, yeah. this is just a moment
0: where the which might be pro- considered progress as well in a sense, you know, on some like maybe superficial level, yeah. But like you know, when we look at the money yeah. So yeah, no, in, in the interview, he mentions that, that Elvis Presley had 23 R, like, R&B number ones. 23. And the idea that, you know, the narrative that, you know, Elvis came al- Elvis was a hero to most. Yeah, but Elvis <laughs> came along and, like, you know, like, took from black music and then, like, you know, became a star, like, on their backs. Is like, yes, like, there's part of that is true. But then also that, like, black listeners were actually extremely interested in Elvis and listening to him and buying his records as well. 23 number one R&B songs. It's wild. And on that, we'll be back in two weeks. You're listening to Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam backer. If you like us, please rate and review us which you can do on the whatever your podcast app is. you can't do it on Spotify, but we are also on Spotify if you do want to listen to that to us on there. And yeah, please tune in again in two weeks.